the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 464 for Tuesday, September 3rd, 2013. Dave Hamilton and John F. Braun. They are the geeks that turn us on. Talking Mac and iOS. Pilot Pete might be the guest They often speak in terminal They make it cool if you don't know Just stick around, you'll understand Just how to enter those commands Dave Hamilton and John F. Braun Go! Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We try to answer your questions. We all learn something from the tips and the cool stuff found that you and we find. And uh, together we all try to learn something new. And that was Kurt Lee with the uh, intro this, uh, this time around with lyrics he even wrote here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> and here in Fearful, Connecticut, John F. Braun with easy listening that's right <laughs> that was easy listening very smooth yeah smooth jazz it's good that was nice i like that kurt we haven't played that one in a while that one we've had for a little while but uh but thank you for doing that kurt it's outstanding all right uh we have we have a lot of good stuff to go through today john i'm i'm uh as always i'm stoked for this show because that's uh that's what we do it's how we roll all right um you know what, John? Let's start. Let's let's mix things up a little bit. Let's start with the first sponsor for this show, which is Smile uh, at SmileSoftware.com. And today uh, they make it easy for me because I get to talk about one of the my favorite things to use, especially when I'm traveling or or away from the office. And that is uh, PDF Pen for iPad. Uh you know, it, this is one of those apps that I know it's been out for a while, probably what 18 months now. Uh, but it's one of those apps that I always hoped would exist and actually work. Uh, but I never expected the iPad, the UI to actually work for this. Uh, I was wrong. Happily, PDF pen is something I use on my Mac almost all the time. Uh, I use it to sign documents so that I don't have to print them and sign them and scan them. I can just put my signature right in there. I can edit PDFs. I can change the text if I need to. I can move things around. And with PDF Pen for iPad, you get to do this on your iPad. You know, you can you can fix typos in a PDF. If you have like a, a price list, you can edit the price inside the PDF. You don't need the source document. You can edit it right there. You can sync with iCloud or Dropbox to get stuff back to your Mac. And then you can exchange documents with other people via Box, Evernote, and even Google. So, uh, so yeah, PDF Pen for iPad, it's, uh, and it works. I've, I've used it. I still use it all the time. It's, it's kind of a go-to app anytime I have to, like I said, put a signature in or, or make some quick edits on the road. Or, or actually what I do is I, I do a lot of annotations of PDFs with it, whereas I read through something that we've got going on, and I put little notes in, and I can make all my stuff, and then I can send it off. So, uh so yeah, PDF Pen for iPad, the app that uh, that I never thought would work, uh, just because I didn't see the iPad as is it working that way. But somebody else saw it differently than me, and they were right. 
But uh, so that's PDF pen. You can see it at smilesoftware.com. And then, of course, when you're ready to buy, you go to the Mac app store, the uh, sorry, not the Mac app store. You go to the uh, iTunes uh, store because it's an iPad app and that's how you get that. So check it out. Smilesoftware.com PDF pen for iPad. And with that, John, let's get into our first question. And our first question comes from Simon. Simon writes, first of all, uh, good to hear that Pilot Pete is back in circulation. Well, he's not here today. He's, uh, I believe he's still about 10 miles off the coast of New Hampshire on the water. But, uh, but he says, uh, Simon asks, a quick question. Is there an alternative to uh, Disk Station Manager for OS X? Why do I ask? I hear you wonder. I've always, and Disk Station Manager is the software that, lives on the Synology network attached storage units. Just to, to give you some background here. Uh, he says, I already have a collection of attached drives to my Mac mini, which seems to be always on or at worst sleeping occasionally. These drives range from a slow one terabyte USB to an expensive Western digital raid zero two terabyte on firewire 800 or equally fast by a really cheap firewire 800 raid zero enclosure into which uh, I've thrown some three and a half inch drives I've had laying around. So I really don't want to stump all that money for another drive enclosure. Uh, and so I was wondering if either the two, because Pete's not here, of you or the listeners knew of some software with which I could create a private cloud solution akin to what Synology offers. And of course, this is similar to what, uh, you know, Transporter uh, from Connected Data offers. But of course, the Synology and the Transporter are hardware solutions. So Simon saying, hey, I already have a Mac with drives attached to it. How do I can I do private cloud on my own? And where that gets tricky, you can share files from your Mac all the time. But where it gets tricky is wanting, you know, with private cloud, we've all come to kind of expect or want that, quote unquote, Dropbox like functionality where you set up a folder and it just syncs data back and forth. And you have the ability to get at that data on your iOS devices. So that's where things get tricky. Sure, you can set up a folder on your Mac to share, but it, that's not enough to really become that private cloud. But you are in luck because there is uh, a piece of software open source called OwnCloud. And we've talked about it before, but it's worth re-mentioning. And it's at owncloud.org. And they have a Mac server available. They have Mac clients. They have iOS clients. I believe the iOS clients are written by someone else. And, and, and whether they are or not, I believe those are for pay. But the uh, server software and the Mac client, and they're cheap, but they're cheap. They're like two bucks or something. So it's not a big deal. Um, but the server software and the Mac client are free and they work. Uh, and what's cool is it's not just this Dropbox style syncing. OwnCloud also has calendar server built in the ability to do photo galleries, uh, the ability to um, mount external storage within the own cloud. So you could actually have own cloud mount your Dropbox inside own cloud and then only have to worry about syncing own cloud and then you'd still get your Dropbox stuff. So uh, and, and here's here's the cool part to tie it all back in. If you have a disk a disk station like you and I do, John, and you don't want to run cloud station or for some reason you do want to run own cloud, you can actually run the own cloud server on your disk station. There is a, a package for that too. So, uh, so yeah, there you go. 
That's uh, you can very easily roll your own personal cloud if you have Mac hardware to do so. John, but there's more, Dave. Well, do tell my friend. <laughs> so a couple of things I thought of, and there there may be more. Yep. But here's uh, here's one that I offer, which most of us are using in some form already. But there is iCloud back to my Mac. Okay, good luck with that on iOS. That's where I'll start. Okay. Right? And also, it's not syncing data to, your, to, your, to all your Macs, right? It just allows you to access it remotely and traverses the firewall in theory, right? Yes. Okay. I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, make sure people understand the, the pros and, and the cons to back to my Mac. I always forget about it because it's always so lame and never works for me, but... Maybe I gave up on it and haven't tested it since they got better. Yes. Okay. No, I'll try to. I haven't used it. Uh, I have used it in the past. And uh, certainly if it's uh, working properly and gets, uh, you know, through your firewall and all that stuff, then you can certainly uh, access your, you know, both screen share, but also access your drives remotely. So. Okay. Thought I'd offer that up. And then another one that I found, Dave. So I haven't used these guys in a while either, but I should probably give it a whirl because they do offer a free trial here, but there is something which they are now calling Pogo Plug, uh, not very well named, Pogo Plug PC. Okay. And is that software a software-only solution? Yes. So, and you'll see the link. I just pasted the link in there. So they say Pogo Plug PC, access and share the files on your PC from anywhere. And I have used this in the past, and it certainly did what they advertised, and that... Uh, if you install their software on one of your computers, you can access remotely uh, huh. the files. Yeah, the yeah, machine. yeah. And now they say, and the nice thing is, so even though I think it's poorly named. <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, it, it makes it makes it sound like you need a Pogo plug hardware device to to do this, right? But, or a PC. Technically, <laughs> oh. a Mac is a PC. Right, right. But what right, they do right. say is that operating systems, Microsoft, uh, Windows XP 7 and 8, uh, and Mac OS 10 6.8 and above, uh, web browser supports pretty much all the major web browsers, and it says it's compatible with iPhone, iPad, and Android. Hey, that's good. So, not a syncing solution, but a remote access, which it sounds like that that's... Well, party of what he wants to do here. I bought all these drives, and how do I access them remotely? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I went because he asked about the personal cloud thing. I went straight to the syncing solution. But you're right. Maybe he's just looking for access and, and that indeed would do that. Yeah. And the pricing here, um, it, it appears. So they have a 30 day free trial and it looks to be twenty nine ninety five per computer that you install this software on. Flat. So, not not per year. Right. It's just uh, it seems to be just uh, flat. Yeah. Looking at the webpage, it says twenty nine ninety five per computer. Uh, okay, I don't see them give a time frame, so it yep. looks to me like you buy it and uh, yeah, and you install it on a machine, and and there you go. And that's the end of that. Yeah. So I was glad to see that. Now they also offer, I think, uh, I think they offer solutions where you buy the uh, the hardware from them as well. Sure. Right. They definitely do. Yeah. 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 That's great. So, hey, nice find, so, man. Good. So I may have to, uh, yeah, revisit those guys here. I mean, they're, they're still a player in the market here, and they're, uh, you know, compare themselves to all the other guys, too. Uh, right. Some of their uh, charts there. So, uh, right. hey, it's a free trial. Give it a whirl. See yeah. See if it does it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. 
All right. You want to take us on to James, John? Yes. Once I, uh, let me get him up in front of me here. All right. So James had a problem. And basically he was trying to access a website uh, in Safari. And we actually, I think it was James that we talked about in a recent show and we told him to reset Safari uh, or empty the caches is where we went in the last show. That didn't do it for him. So you've got some additional stuff, right? Not one, but two, well, maybe three things here. So, so the site he was trying to get to is startribune.com. And I think both you and I tried to access it and, and we didn't have a problem, but that's not to say he's not having a problem. Sure. So, but it does mean that it's, it's, it's possible with Safari. And that's, a, that's good news and bad news. It means there's something specific about James' uh, computer that we need to help him solve. Right. So one suggestion that I have. So many web pages, uh, when they render the content, will use what are known as plugins, which are uh, small programs that handle certain types of content. Uh, Flash is one of them. Uh, and and there, there are lots of them. Uh, and if you want to know what a plugin is, Apple has a little article on that. We'll list that. But then they also have a suggestion. Um, if you run into problems, uh, what to do. And basically their suggestion is go to where the plugins are stored and maybe uh, disable them, which I think uh, the best way to do that would probably drag them, you know, quit the browser, drag them out of the uh, folder, which uh, the, uh, the folder is named Internet Plugins. And I'll find an article here that gives you some guidance where it could be. There are multiple places where plugins could be. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about where they could be. I mean, this okay. is yeah. Cause. Well, here we go. Where they could be. So, uh, so first they say, "All right, well, quit Safari." Then yes. locate yes. the plugin. Now, here's the tricky part, though. It's in a place that I didn't necessarily expect. So, the first, uh, and I think the primary place that you're going to find plugins is slash library slash internet plugins. So that's ho- the the top of your hard drive, not your top home level. folder. Yep. Correct. Though, as you suspected, the other place is in your home folder slash library slash internet plugins. And if you look in either one of those folders, you may see plugins. Well, well the first thing actually you want to do is uh, to, to see all of the plugins that are uh, available to your uh, installation of Safari. If you go to the help menu, you will see a menu choice installed plugins. And if you look at that, you're going to see a list here. Like the first one that I see is Adobe Acrobat. And then it lists the type of content that it's meant to handle. So PDFs and uh, mostly PDFs. Yeah. Um, so you may want to look through that list. Now, if you do go into the plugins folder, what you're going to notice, and this is another thing that uh, the, you know, I suggested, uh, you're going to see dates on these. Now, my suspicion is that what may be happening is that you either have a damaged plugin or you may have plugins, although this should not happen, that may be fighting with each other to handle content because uh, the symptom that he saw when he went to this website is he got part of it rendered and then he would get the beach ball of doom. <laughs> so that's right. one suggestion that I have. So one is check your plugins, uh, disable them and see, see if the, the page loads. It may load, but you may see... You know, I think typically what happens if you don't have the right plugin for content and it's going to show like a little plugin piece and show plugin missing. Right. Yep. Have you ever run it? And then yep. if you click on that, then it'll typically try to, I think, help you locate the appropriate plugin to handle that sort of content. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so they could either be old or conflicting. So that's one piece of advice. But then another piece of advice that I have, Dave. 
So of course we suggested getting rid of caches and that's always good, but there's also other data um, that a website interacts with that you may want to scrub as well. And I don't think that the reset Safari necessarily gets rid of all of this. And so the place that you want to look is if you go into Safari, you go into the uh, preferences, then the privacy tab, uh, you're going to see then a cookies and other website data. And I think that's important because it says other website data. So cookies are one form of data that are stored by the browser, but there's other types of data stored. And what happens is that if you click on the details button in that pane, and then you type in the name of a website, uh, it'll eventually match and then tell you the types of content that are being stored by that website. And at least in my case, uh, let me see. I've got, I've got that Star Tribune website up and it actually has what I can, what I would call all three. It has cash cookies and local storage. And, and I, I think that local storage may be uh, the thing that, at least for James, is corrupted. This is where a website, in addition to just the small bits of data that are typically stored in a cookie, actually asks Safari for a local data store to pump some stuff in to make your browsing experience uh, faster and snappier. Once you get data, it, it can, you know, it can actually store a little database on your computer. But uh but yeah, I think I think removing that with the remove button, not the remove all. Remove all will remove everything. <laughs> well, it's not clear. It, you know, you, you've got remove and remove isn't. all it in on this screen, and remove will remove what you've selected. Remove all will remove everything. So uh, remo just highlight the one web page that's giving you trouble in in an instance like this. Hit remove and see what and and then you know start from scratch. See what happens. And it might be, what did I see? Oh, actually, in my case, I saw four entries, Dave. So okay. You saw three? I saw four. So what I saw cash. Yep. I saw cash, cookies, databases, mm. and local storage. Okay. Okay. So apparently there are at least four categories oh, of there you go. data that uh, the site can store on your, uh, your computer to hopefully make things, you know, make for a nicer experience, but not if it gives you a beach ball. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, beach ball bad. Yeah. I, beyond that, I mean, I, I got nothing beyond all the other stuff we suggested. All right. Well, good. That's, uh, that, I think that's a, that's, that's good. All right. Mark had an interesting problem. He got on an airplane and uh, had rented a movie. Uh, on iTunes on his uh, on his computer and uh, actually he uh, he rented it I'm trying to think here he rented it directly on his iPad I believe and uh, and then he got into uh, mid-flight and went and pressed play and boom nothing played in fact it said that he needed effectively told him that he needed to be on the internet to authenticate his rental so he could start his 24 hour period. And, uh, and this was, uh, very bad. So he found a way to, uh, he, he, he found a post that says rented movies are downloaded and a streaming connection is not required. The error that Mark saw occurs when an internet connection is not available to validate the download at the start of the 24 hour period. If you'll be watching the rented movie and here comes the tip. If you'll be watching the rented movie on a plane or elsewhere offline, you will want to attempt to open the movie before going offline. This triggers an alert about starting the 24 hour period, which you can decline. So, uh, but, but this process, even when you decline does validate the download and allow you to start it at any time within 30 days, 
even if you're offline. So you want to go to the movie, hit play. It'll say, hey, your 24 hour period's about to start. You say no thanks. But now you've been validated and you're okay. But if you just download and don't try that before you go offline, uh, there's a good chance that you will be declined or denied the ability to entertain yourself mid flight. And that I've had that happen. I had it happen with Plex told. Well, very similar circumstance, actually, but 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 different, obviously, because Plex is not iTunes. Uh, but um, but it's very frustrating when that happens, <laughs> as you might imagine, because you're sort of trapped in this, you know, sardine can. And uh, and, you know, but, it, it, you know, if you do get stuck in that, if you can get on the plane's Wi-Fi, of course, you're going to have to pay for it. And that's going to perhaps offset the, uh, you know, the movie that you just saved. But there you go. So that's the trick. Hit play before you get offline and uh, and then you should be good to go. So thank you for sharing that with us, Mark. Good stuff. Did you have something and, there, John? I heard you sighing. That's usually a well, sign that just, you have a problem. Well, well, but I don't have a problem. But you know, as a paying customer, I movie industry. This is why people pirate things. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, it totally. Yeah. That no, that's true. This yeah. is someone who's paid for their content, didn't realize the nuances of the DRM, which is what's happening here. It's you know enforcing a uh, you know period within which you can. I guess in this case it was a rental, right? Yep, that's and, right. Uh, and yeah, unless you're you're willing to shell you know out for GoGo or something like that, you're uh, yeah, it's terrible. It's ter it's terrible. No, I agree. It, this is what drives people to pirate stuff. And uh, and yeah, yeah, I don't want. I'm okay paying. I don't want to pay and then have to jump through hoops and climb over walls to get the stuff that I paid. Well, that's <laughs> what they're making this guy do. It's crazy. Yeah. Or even the most ridiculous thing I saw just the other day. So yeah. I, I rented a uh, Blu-ray disc. Yeah. Guys, if I rent a Blu-ray disc, okay. And so it had the ads that were unskippable that I could fast forward. So there's a tip for you folks is that, so a lot of discs will prevent you from fast, from jumping to the next chapter for the ads, but I haven't seen one yet. And if they do, I think there's going to be, you know, riots in the streets, <laughs> but you can always fast forward or and at least the discs that I've had. The, the other way to solve that problem is if you get home and you aren't intending to watch the movie right away, you just rip mm -hmm. it onto your Mac so that you don't have to deal with mm -hmm. any of that stuff and watch it from there. And then uh, the right thing to do after you finish watching it, of course, is delete it from your Mac because no, because you did only rent the movie. You did not buy it, uh, at least in the example. Yeah, but that that's what we that do. I, I don't mess with that stuff. I, I'm sick and tired of of having to, you know, to mm -hmm. sit down and listen. I like previews. I actually I, I learn about new movies that I want to watch from previews. But, well, yeah. Well, but likewise. I, but if I if I if I'm not interested, if it's, you know, 50 or whatever, you know, if, it, if it's something I know, I, I definitely am not interested in. Let me skip it, man. Exactly. What's the harm? Yeah. The thing I found was the, the most ridiculous, though, is that it was a Blu-ray disc and there was a commercial telling me how great Blu-ray was. It's like. Guys, I'm watching a Blu-ray. You don't have to convince me that it's it's a better <laughs> it's a better format. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, you had a very quick thing with uh, with Al Allison Sheridan with who, our friend Allison. Yeah. Another DRM nightmare. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, just fish shakes all around here. I'm with you. So, so Allison, um, Allison runs Aperture. Uh, which is Apple's uh, pro, I would say, uh, photo management and editing 
software, but she has the uh, version that I guess came on physical media. And what Apple did in that case was that you were required to type in a serial number. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I guess. Well, sure. Well, it's not cool because here's what started happening. What started happening is she would start up Aperture and it would say, hey, could you enter your serial number again? She's like, what? So she finally got support here. Um, And it was a fix that I never heard of, Dave. So I just want to offer it to people who are are stuck. And I'll say stuck with the Apple software that uses DRM instead of through the App Store. Which also Uh, uses DRM. To be fair. Yeah, but it doesn't. But it, but once you purchase it through the app store, but, but it never, at least Aperture, never asks you for a serial number. Yes, they do use DRM in, right. in some fashion. But, but once you download it, it, you're cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't use serial number DL, DRM. No, you're totally right. You're right. totally right. Yep. But what she found is something that I had not seen because I, did not, uh, I had not run older versions of Apple Pro software. So here was the fix to her problem. So if anybody is running Aperture, the version that you purchased on physical media, um, her problem was that or what, what she had to do was go to library slash pro apps. The main uh, library folder? Uh, she did not say. So I'm, I'm not sure which one. Okay. But in one of her library folders, I, I would suspect the user um, library okay. folder, there was then a pro apps system ID and aperture system ID uh, file or directory. I'm not quite sure which. Um, but basically, they said delete those, enter the serial number, um, and then it it stopped asking her for that. That's a good thing. So, but I had never run into that this pro apps. So I guess that's the way Apple uh, classified their uh, professional applications. Yep. And she, it took her a while to get this level of support. And actually, I think I saw a follow up where it started asking her again. <sighs> In which case, if it started asking her for the serial number again. I mean, I know Allison. She she's very persistent. Yes, when she needs to be, I would I would yell at Apple and say, you know what? Give me the App Store version. I bought it and and it, it it's broken. Yeah, you know that it's this Convert is me to the App Store. They could certainly do it, whether they will or someone can get the authorization to do that. Where I think they can just give her a promo code or something, right? Of course. Yeah. The the um. The, the, this is a, a good opportunity to remind everyone, and John and I have been through it with hardware, but it certainly works with software in this you know, instance, too, where the software is not cheap. Um, Apple has, as every big company does, Apple has, uh, they call it their customer relations department. Some companies call it the office of the president. Some companies call it the executive relations team. Apple calls it customer relations, and it's a team of not very many, probably, you know, a handful of customer service ninjas that are totally there to uh, cut through all the red tape, look at your case and, you know, find a way to fairly uh, make you happy. And John and I have both been through this at least once. I think I've been through it twice where Apple has replaced uh, a, a computer for me entirely, you know, like send us your old or we'll send you a new one. Send us your old one back. Sorry for all the hassle. But to get there, you have to have a case already on file. So in Allison's case, you know, she needs to call up Apple Care, tell them what she's going through, have them walk her through it, then report that it's happening again. If you can report that it's happening three times, that's very helpful. Then you just call Apple's main number, not Apple Care. Uh, you call the main number 408-996-1010 and ask for customer relations. And then when you get them politely, but, you know, firmly explain what's going on. 
They'll ask for your case number. And in a case like, like this, you know, I would recommend that Allison specifically ask them, please replace this with the, you know, tell them what it would take to make you happy. Um, and, and that gives them a path to go down. They won't always. I mean, if you tell them, Hey, look, you know, I had a problem with, uh, with my, you know, uh, seven year old iPod, uh, nano, uh, I would love to get four MacBook pros from you to make me happy. That's probably not going to happen. Right. But you know, if it's something reasonable in there and you truly have a legitimate gripe, they will, uh, in most cases, take care of you because that's, mm-hmm. that's their job. So uh, in this case, I would totally recommend Allison, you know, if she already has a case on file with Apple, uh, if yeah. it keeps happening, just go to go to customer relations. Well, I and I think, you know, the suggestion is 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 reasonable is totally. know, I just want to I just want a version of the software that doesn't pester me for entering my serial number because it slows me down. That's it. No, it's a totally reasonable request. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. All right. Ryan has uh, a question. He says, I recently switched to a Mac for my work computer. However, I have come to a very uncomfortable situation where the Outlook 2011 for Mac has a disturbance in the font size when sent to any random part recipient. Uh, I need to send an email in size 15 for it to be received in standard font size 12. The issue is compounded when the recipient replies and jumps their font size up to a size 15, which becomes a size 18 on my Mac. I cannot find a workaround, search the web, and have found this issue common with no real correction. If I can't fix this issue with Outlook, then I need the best mail software for a professional environment. My job requires a very steady diet of email traffic, and this is very unprofessional to have these issues continue to persist. He has a second question, which we will get to, but let's deal with this first one first. Um, He's sending formatted email. Uh, When you send email that has bold and italics and fonts and and that kind of stuff, uh, it gets sent as HTML, the same language that's used to uh, format websites. And when you start down that path, when you open that that Pandora's box, as it were, things can get wonky. Uh, My advice, regardless of what mail program you use, and I honestly think that Apple's mail uh, can work totally fine in a professional environment. It, it can handle high volumes of email. No problem. And it's extensible. So you've got a lot of add-ons uh, that you can uh, that you can leverage. However, if you're going to use Outlook, uh, you can do this too. You want to, my advice, turn off HTML formatting uh, as the default for messages you send out. If you send emails in what's called plain text, the recipient gets it with no hints as to how you wanted that formatted, no font size, no nothing. So they get to read the email in whatever they've set as their default font. And they see it in, in a way that's very natural. And of course, when they reply to a plain text email, most of the time they're going to also their clients going to default to that same format. Not always, but most of the time, hopefully, And then you'll get it back and see it in your preferred format. And really all you're doing is exchanging text back and forth. And that's the best way. There are times when you need to use HTML for email, but I I do not believe it to be a wise default. Uh, For those of you using Apple Mail, uh, you can set this uh, in preferences. And I believe it's in composing. And uh, at the top of the composing window, uh, or pane, I should say, you have a message format. And you can set it to plain text or rich text. Uh, I set mine to plain text. You can change this uh, on a message by message basis. 
by going to the message menu and changing. Uh, I think it's the message, the format menu. I'm sorry. Go to the format menu and say either make make rich text or make plain text. But uh, but for Outlook, there's a slightly more convoluted process. We will put a link in the show notes uh, that walks you through disabling that. But that's that's my advice. Uh, stay away from HTML email as a default. If you need it, fine. But, you know, otherwise stay away from it. And if you're thinking about using it in your signature so that you get colors and all that stuff, don't. It, it confuses things and people don't really appreciate that stuff for the most part. So thoughts, John, you bet. <laughs> I'm going to suspect Dave, that the underlying problem here is somebody's system. Maybe not the sender, but perhaps the receiver may have some wonkiness with their fonts. Yeah. But if you turn mm-hmm. off it, I'm, if you kill, I, I understand. Yes. If you go I, plain I text, then that yes. alleviates that problem entirely. But I, yes, I agree. But yes. there may be an underlying problem with the fonts, and and I'll tell you a place you may want to look here. Okay. Um, Fontbook is Apple's utility that will let you examine and also do some limited uh, integrity checking and actually enabling and disabling of fonts. And Fontbook uh, is installed by default on every OS X system. It's it's in your utilities folders, so you can you can just launch it. I launch it from Spotlight because that's an easy way to launch any app. Just you know, hit Spotlight, type font, and you'll see Fontbook, and up it goes. Right, and I think we've in the past run into problems here where there there were issues with Microsoft issues font uh, Microsoft issued fonts conflicting with Apple installed fonts. So perhaps, I don't know. So either you may not want to use a Microsoft-specific Microsoft font. You may want to use something generic and see if that fixes the problem. Right? I mean, to me, a generic font would be, you know, Courier, I think, is a nice mono, generic monospace font. And I think, uh, what's a nice uh, serif? Uh, you know, Hel- Helvetica. Helvetica is a sans serif, but, you know, a- Arial is pretty common for email these days. Um, or for, you know, any kind of electronic stuff. It's not pretty, but it's, it's sufficient. It does, but at least here, at least on my system, Dave. So, so I'm looking actually at my Lion system here. Um, and actually, Arial is under the Microsoft Office compatible font category. Yep. So may want to avoid that one. So again, I think Courier, you know, it's boring, but <laughs> almost everybody has it. Um, assuming it's not corrupted. Okay, so, the problem uh, that, with Courier is it can be tough to read for long emails because it's because it's monospaced, so it gets very. Um, it, it's it's you know it's from the old typewriter, right? So using something if you want uh, 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 if you want a serif font, which that is, you can use Times or something that's that's a little more modern. Yeah, or maybe yeah. Helvetica. I think is a well, Helvetica is sans serif, but yeah, so. yeah, Helvetica and Arial are very very similar. Or what Times New Roman? I guess that's a nice uh, mm-hmm. that's a nice one too. Mm-hmm. So um, so I think that's the underlying problem. Though I'm I'm totally with you. Is that if you if you don't need to uh, you know do any fancy stuff with fonts or font sizes, then uh, go for the plain Jane. Yeah, yeah, just plain <laughs> text. Save everybody. Yeah, save everybody. Go for the plain text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And plus, you're saving bandwidth, so that's good, right? <laughs> uh, I guess. Yeah. Sure. For 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 the user, yes. Yes, that's right. All right. He says uh, the second part to his question or his second question is 
regards to synchronizing calendars, his calendars, between his Mac and his iPhone. He says, my company isn't using an exchange server, just a standard basic email server. I'm struggling to find the best method. Huh. Let me try that again. <laughs> struggling to find the best method for both mail and calendar and really starting to consider Google, if that makes sense. Uh, it, for your calendar, I, I would absolutely consider using Google to do your syncing. It works fantastically well. Uh, you can see it on the web. You can see it on your iOS devices. You can see it on your Mac. And it works inside Calendar. It works inside BusyCal. And more on that in a moment. Um, it And it works. It, it It's simple. If you're only worried about syncing Apple devices, you can also use iCloud. Uh, it, you know, fits all of those pri- prior categories. It works. It's simple. Uh, their calendar software is standard. You can see it on the web, all that good stuff. In both cases, of course, you need to be comfortable with either Google or Apple, uh, depending on who you choose, having your calendar data. So bear that in mind. Uh, you know, privacy is always a concern and they do have this stuff on their servers once you sync with them. So, you know, uh, my guess is that's probably OK, but it is good. Good to know. So, yeah, I would I would definitely go with one of those for sure. Any, any additional thoughts on that, John, before we move on? No. Okay. Uh, so that does lead us into our second sponsor, which I mentioned in that question, uh, is Busy Mac and Busy Cal. Uh, Busy Cal is, it's my favorite calendar app. It's really what it comes down to on the Mac. Uh, these are the guys that a long time ago were involved in making something called Now Up to Date which was the best calendar for like OS seven and eight and nine. And now uh, for years, they've been making busy Cal for OS 10. It's like calendar pro. Okay. It uh, the best part is for those of you that don't already use it is that the first time you launch it, it'll pull in all your data that you already have in calendar on your Mac. Uh, And then going forward, it actually remains in sync with it. So you're not locked in. You can go to their website, get a 30 day trial. That's at busymac.com, and, and just test it out. Um, And, and if you decide for whatever reason that you don't want to keep using it, just quit the app, uninstall it and run calendar. And your data is all still there. It just works that way. But I think you are going to want to keep it. Uh, you, you can buy it from the Mac app store. It's only twenty nine ninety nine. So, you know, great price for a uh, calendar app. Uh, but again, a 30 day free trial, the current version, version 2.5, which is a free upgrade. If you have uh, busy Cal already, uh, busy Cal two already, I should say, but version 2.5 adds support for exchange and is available now. So if you need to sync with an exchange server and that has kept you from considering busy Cal in the past, uh, no longer is that an issue. Uh, it, like I said, it's totally com- compatible with Google calendar, iCloud, really any CalDAV server that you might have out there. If you've got some custom thing, if you're running an own cloud server, busy Cal can sync with it. Uh, they have custom views so you can really tweak how you see things and you can scroll by day in a week view, scroll by weeks in a month view. If you want, it's really simple. It uses great uh, gestures on your trackpad. really works well. And one of my favorite things is that it has all of your to do's integrated inside the app. So you don't have to run a separate app for me. I, I manage my to do's very simply. 
And I just like to see them right there in my calendar along with my day's events. And I can, I can manage it all in one app. Uh, BusyCal has smart filters. So I have the ability to, you know, I have a bunch of different calendars. I have my Mac Geek Cab calendar. I have a personal calendar. I have a gigs calendar, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I can choose different views that I want to see and different sets of calendars. And uh, it's almost like using iTunes smart playlists. You, you can create these sets of calendars and then bounce around between them. So I can have a set that shows me, you know, personal and gigs, but not work stuff or only work stuff or, you know, only the stuff that, that the family has to worry about. And I have all this set so I can just bounce around and launch and uh, or activate and deactivate different sets of calendars all the time. And then just to make things fun, they have built in. Uh, not only weather support, which is great to see just at a glance in your calendar, but they have moon phases that you can have in there, which I like. And they also, it's so smart. It, once you tell it, uh, where you are for the weather, it, uh, also tracks the, uh, the sunset and sunrise each day and shows that as the night and day times on your calendar. So, uh, so you really get a feel for when you're going to have daylight and when you're going to have darkness and, and all that stuff. Again, just that that's just a cool little add on, but uh, or not an add on, but a, a cool little thing they did. It's built in. Check it out. BusyCal.com. I can't speak highly enough about it. I've uh, I'm pretty sure I've been using it since it was in beta years ago because I begged them to let me because I couldn't stand iCal anymore. And uh, and I haven't looked back since. So think about it as BusyCal being calendar pro. And, uh, and go check it out. Go to busymac.com or busycal.com. I, uh, I've gone to both and you can download your 30 day free trial right from them. And once you're hooked, it's twenty nine ninety nine Mac app store. You're good to go. Check them out. All right, John, moving on. You have, uh, we talked about secure certificates last week or secure email last week. Yes. And, uh, and one of the things we talked about was, I sent a secured email to both you and Pete, and there was some question as to how exactly that happened. And uh, listener Robert detailed for us exactly why I was able to send one encrypted email to two of you, uh, even though you both, of course, use different keys. And uh, I think you're going to read about that from Robert now. Yes? Yes. And I'll explain a little bit about what it means, because it may not mean something to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was good. I was cool. I was glad when you explained it to me. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. His explanation as to why you can do this. So he he says, the body of an encrypted email is generally encrypted using a symmetric key, not the public-private key pair, because running the encryption and decryption algorithm using symmetric keys is much faster. The key used for symmetric encryption is in self-encrypted using the asymmetric or public-private key pair, meaning that to send an encrypted email to multiple people, you only need to encrypt the symmetric key multiple times, not the entire body of the email message. Okay. Now, so we, already explained, we, we already explained what public and private key means. Back and this in, is underneath the covers here. Yes, that was back in for show four sixty three. For those of you that that missed that, and and that was right. a good conversation. So yeah. Go so ahead. the way that system works very quickly is that you have two keys, uh, and you need both to accomplish anything. And, well, and to one, accomplish decryption, you need both. Or side, yeah, yeah. So so uh, so you need both of those keys, and the power of that is that one can be public, one can be private, and and the system just works. 
prior to that, what was used was what he does refer to as something called um, symmetric key. Um, or actually, that's called single key. Okay. So in the old days, that is how people did encryption. And you may have heard of some of these algorithms, like one is called DES, Data Encryption Standard, and the latest one is called AES, Advanced Encryption Standard. And those systems are great because, number one, they're very fast. The, the one downside of the public key encryption is that it's low. Okay. And you can see this just looking at the key sizes, is that typically public keys are thousands of bits long. And these other... And the, whereas these other algorithms typically use keys that are in the tens or hundreds of bits. So the thing is, they operate fast. So what happens is underneath the covers, a symmetric key is generated. And you better hope it's random. A single key. <laughs> a but, single key. Yeah, yeah. Just trying generated. to get the translation here. Yep. Right. So what happens is that underneath the covers for speed, and also, you know, in this case, to, to not have to do a lot of r- repetitive work, the single key is generated and that is then securely exchanged using the public key technology. Okay, so what, and, it, and is this the case for, and we're going to explain a little bit more about this because I think it's important, but I want to ask you first, is this the case with all email that's encrypted or only email that's encrypted to multiple recipients? Uh, I'm looking at the SMIME standard. Yeah. So I actually did find, so, so my reply to him was actually, so here I'll, I'll babble a bit here. So well, then can I you just answer the, that question though? Yes. Okay. It is. Yes. So, so SMIME, if you look at the SMIME standard, they talk about the SMIME session key. And right now the accepted algorithms for that are triple des or advanced encryption standard. Okay. So I have RFC 3853. I have gone, uh, I I've chosen to get a, uh, 2048, uh, bit key right for my s email and that makes me happy because i know that things are really encrypted well but the only thing from what you're telling me here the only thing that's encrypted with that is this session key which in and of itself is far less secure than my 2048 key or or your 4096 key is that right uh, that's a that's a difficult question okay but okay, so let me take. I, I would let say, me take, it, no, 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 wait yes, one second. Relative, let, relatively less in that you could probably brute force if you have enough time. Some of these, uh, you know, single key solutions yeah. like DES or AES. So a, a better way to say that without editorializing, which I realize I did, was to say that the only thing that's encrypted with my key is this session key, which has been generated on the fly by either my mail program or, or yours or, you know, whoever's sending me email. That is that correct? Looking at the spec, that is that is my understanding. OK, so that's really interesting. So we've got these, you know, hyper secure keys that are being used to encrypt some potentially less secure keys that are that. And that's what's used to encrypt the email because that's much faster than uh, than doing this the other way. Right. Of course, the challenge is that in order to get at that relatively less secure key, you have to figure out how to crack the very right. powerful, right. higher level encryption. So it actually makes sense. Yep. And actually, uh, I, I had done some work with uh, SSL now called TLS, and that does the exact same thing for, for the same reason. Sure. Is when you establish an SSL session with a secure website, yep. it's generating this random key and then exchanging it using the public key Interesting. technology. Okay. So um, Cool. 
I, and is this the same? I know that, that we're talking about S-MIME, which is the tech that's built in natively to iOS and, and Mac-based uh, email. Is this also the way that uh, PGP works with like GPG mail and all that? Or is that truly encrypting the message with your key? Do you know? Uh no, not off the top of my head. Okay. I have to look at the okay, so GP standard. I, I suspect for the same reasons, for speed reasons, unless they've come up with some amazingly clever way mm. of making public key stuff go really, really fast. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, for example, when I selected my key, I actually, just for kicks, when I did the PGP key selection, I, I selected a 4096-bit uh, public I, key. I know. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Just because I wanted a really big key. I mean, I think sure. it defaults to 2048. But it does. Sorry, yeah, 2048 was what I meant to say before. Yeah, 2096. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, interesting. All right, good. All right. Uh, let's see. We have a couple of questions about um, Wi-Fi setup. First is from Peter. He says, uh, my network question, I'll try to be simple and to the point. I have an AT&T UVerse connection with their own gateway that acts as a router and broadcasts 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, uh, a, uh, B and G, 802.11 B and G. Connected to that via Ethernet is my third generation airport extreme base station, broadcasting both 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. I have a Raspberry Pi running uh, its own stuff and a Seagate GoFlex home uh, terabyte drive, both connected via Ethernet to the, to the airport extreme. These are all within three feet of each other. I'm broadcasting the UVerse Wi-Fi because a couple of friends' devices are still occasionally connecting to it. And in order to use the UVerse app with the receivers, they have to connect to it. Uh, according to a big chicken on the Apple, I don't know why he's a big chicken on the Apple boards discussion. Uh, this is fine. What are your thoughts? Personally, I'm unsure uh, as to if I'm taking a beating on my internet speeds via Wi-Fi, since I know nothing about networking specifics or protocols. Okay. In general, you don't want to have two radios broadcasting on the same frequency right next to each other because they will, as you might imagine, blow into each other. But thankfully, with so, so there's several solutions to this. Number one would be to turn off the 2.4 broadcast on your airport extreme base station. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one you now lose the ability to use 802.11n over 2.4 because your existing router from AT&T is only going to G. And number two, you have a third generation airport extreme and you can't turn off the uh, one radio and leave the other on. So you have to leave it broadcasting. With that, I highly recommend setting your channels differently. Uh, I would set them as far apart as possible, but at the very least, you want them to be uh, unique uh, for the 2.4 you want them to either be one three or six and and you don't want them to be the same so if you have set your at&t thing to channel one uh did i say one three and six i was wrong you want to be one six and eleven one six one or six or eleven because those are the only channels that will not overlap with each other frequency wise. So if you have your AT&T thing on channel one, you want your airport extreme on channel six or channel 11 uh, and vice versa. So keep those unique. It's still going to probably interfere a little bit because that's just the way radios work, but uh, because they're so close to each other, but it's doing it that way is going to keep you from having a huge impact, negative impact to your Wi-Fi speeds. Did I get that right, John? 
As far as I can tell. Once I corrected myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's all about the channels. Yeah, I do the same thing. I I think, uh, yeah, recently, uh, I think I'm on channel six because anything that I can see is on either one or 11. So Mm -hmm. So that's where I keep my 2.4 stuff. Cool. All right. Good. All right. Uh, Let's see. Now we have another wireless extension question from Dave. Came in uh, just Hello, before guys. the show. Dave Cook, Targetees, New York. Where the heck are you? Um, I'm uh, calling for some hopefully quick, pre-friendly advice. Um, and I was going to email you guys, but I just really haven't had a minute to sit down and type. So I'm doing it now with some rain in the background on my car, as you may hear. Um, but I'll try to be quick. Uh, I'm uh, reconfiguring um, a friend's slash client's home network in a couple of days. Uh, it's, uh, I might have actually already asked a question about this network a couple of years ago because it's been going on for a while. But anyway, he's bought um, a ton of Sonos equipment from me. Um, he's a pretty famous uh, professional photographer and uh, is constantly loading lots of data, photos and stuff up, pulling them down has probably half a dozen Apple TVs through the house, um, probably half a dozen iPads, countless other iOS devices and laptops, blah, 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 Roku, smart TVs, all that. So it's a big load on the on the, on the Internet. Uh, for the most part, it works okay. We're just having, we're mainly having Wi-Fi issues. Um, put in, we put in a few um, Airport Expresses try, just trying to um, extend, and I know that you guys don't... Uh, really recommend that, and uh, it hasn't really worked. I've tried a couple of Powerline Ethernet adapters. They kind of work, but they're intermittent. The biggest problem is up in the master bedroom uh, and the second floor, another guest bedroom up there and stuff, um, where the Wi-Fi is very sketchy. And uh, uh, so what I have done is I hired uh, an electrician to come in and pull some Cat5 um, to a couple of locations to the house, and this is my plan, and tell me how it's sounding. Uh, I'm going to come off of the main router, which is an Airport Express, uh, or sorry, an Airport Extreme. Um, I'm then going to hit uh, a gigabit network switch that I just purchased. And out of the network switch, I'm going to hit these two, uh, these three new home runs that we pulled, um, the Ethernet, the Cat5 home runs. Uh, one of the main ones going to go to the master bedroom. I was going to put another Airport Extreme up there. Um and then come off of that, feed the Apple TV, uh, feed the Sonos device that's up in that room, which will also spit Sonos Net around the rest of that floor to the other devices, uh, and whatever else needs to happen, um, whatever else needs to feed. But that's the crux of it. Now, I guess the biggest question is, should I put that airport extreme in uh, what is the mode? Well, I, know I, I assume bridge, but... To, just to where it extends the network um, under the same uh, SSID and passwords? And do you think it's solid enough that it'll just automatically log a switch to that one when they go upstairs? That's been the issue. Sometimes when they do switch to the airport expresses that are up there, it's fine. It actually works okay, but their devices don't always switch. Um, so uh, I want to get something that's going to be rock solid. Or do I just set up another Wi-Fi zone with a different name and have, I just tell them to make sure that when they're upstairs, they log on to that because it'll be really robust, fast Wi-Fi up in that area. Uh, 
So there you go. How does my logic sound? And what about the last question about that? Um, All right. Uh, Let's see where we can go from here. Yeah. So you've tried Powerline uh, to replace the extensions that didn't work for various electrical reasons. And so you ran Ethernet. Great. Totally fine. And and that's actually the best solution, although it's not not the easiest nor the most cost effective. It gets the job done and you never have to worry about it as long as you don't have rats in the walls chewing up the Ethernet cables. Right. Um. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's true. So the, the, the first question, when you hang this airport uh, extreme upstairs or airport express, whatever it was uh, in the bedroom, you want to put it in bridge mode, as you said, and you want to put it in create a wireless network mode, uh, not in extend a wireless network mode uh, in this case. But you do want to name it the same SSID. I really believe that that's going to be the simplest answer, and I think it is going to work. Um Certainly, if you name it a different SSID, uh, it will you can you can do what you said and manually choose it. But you're going to have people manually choosing stuff back and forth all day long. And that's going to drive them crazy. If you set it to the same SSID, same security settings, if any, uh, and different channel, as we just discussed in the previous question, uh, then I think you're going to be okay. And I I think that's really going to work very well for you uh, and for your client because it it will roam just fine. But these things connected via Ethernet, uh, you're not going to have any of those weird, you know, Wi-Fi echoing problems or any of that stuff. So uh, so I I think I think you're I think you're fine. I I think that I think that's the way to do it. One one thing I'll point out, because I know we have some Sonos users here. If you have more than one Sonos device connected via ethernet in your house make sure that they are true ethernet and not power line devices sonos creates its own wireless mesh and uh power some power line devices don't deal with the way sonos likes to kind of manage that mesh between wired and wireless and you can create a network loop it has to do with something called stp spanning tree protocol uh gets way more complex than i'll ever want to get into here but suffice to say it decides which to use wireless or wired and the problem is power line doesn't pass those packets and so it tries to use both and then it just fails and brings your whole network down with it um the other thing i would do is if you again if you have sonos stuff and multiple wireless stations in sonos if you go to uh on the on the app on your mac go to preferences and advanced manually set the channel the Wi-Fi channel that your Sonos will use. It, it's 2.4 gigahertz as well. So you've got to manage that separately. You don't want routers broadcasting on that same signal. Uh, so, you know, you've got to, you know, again, one, six and 11 are your three channels to use. Uh, set your Sonos to one of those and then set your other wireless routers to others. So. Like that's that. I don't have anything else on that one, John, do you? Did I lose you there? You st- you sound a lot quieter than you were initially. Okay. Did I uh think we're good. Okay. All right. Maybe Skype's acting weird. Playing with the knobs there? No, no, no. Skype I think or, it uh... I think it was a Skype thing. So Skype's doing weird stuff on my end today. I got a I got a monkey with it. Okay. We're done with Dave, I got yes, good news go. and a tip. Yeah, go. Yes. So, this is perfect. Yes, go. So the other day I was uh I was uh checking out uh my uh, primary ISP. Yep. Uh to see if they offer IMAP. Um, the way I was set up before, so we've talked about this, that, you know, you, you, you helped drag me out of the dark ages of using pop and, uh, and I decided to migrate. Uh, 
Mum, uh, was only offering pop for email pickup. So what I was doing, so what I did was set up Google Mail to do a pop pickup. This is one way you could do it. The other way to, to do it, of course, would be to forward it from my ISP to Google. But I chose to do the pop pickup. So the other day I was just surfing and I was searching around and I typed in Optimum and IMAP and they're like, oh, you want to set up Optimum for IMAP? Well, here you go. Here's the name of the server. Uh, you know, the IMAP server and the SMTP server. And uh, and here you go. And I'm like, oh, awesome. You know, because I'd, I'd rather have it as a standalone, mostly on the iOS side. Because sure. Hang on, John. I think we got something weird going on. I, um, try talking to me again. I'm talking to you. Okay. Hello? Occasionally I am losing you and I think the listeners are, are losing you. So right. uh, try it, but it's, I, I don't think it's on your end. I think it's on my end, but it doesn't matter because it affects our listeners. So I know when this is happening, I'm not exactly sure why, although I have some ideas. They want to, it's not something I can solve me. And yeah, let me, let's uh, let me pause this and, uh, right. and bring you back. All right. Hang on one second. You're back with me, right, John? Yes, sir. Okay. Start that one from scratch. Because I think you cut in and out on this. So you found out that Optimum Online would let you do IMAP. And for those of you that are Optimum Online customers, we'll put a link in the show notes that explains how to set up your servers to do that so that you can do it just like John could, too. Yes. So basically, I was doing a search and they now give information on how to set up IMAP. So I was like, oh, well, that's great because, um, you know, I had... Uh, recently, thanks, Dave, uh, moved out of the Dark Ages from Pop, uh, doing a Pop pickup from my opt online to actually, uh, well, doing a Pop pickup from Gmail. But Gmail is IMAP. So, so the way I had it set up was that I was doing a Pop pickup into Gmail, and then I was doing an IMAP pickup from Gmail. So that's, you know, a step in the right direction. But now opt online is offering IMAP uh, directly. Or at least uh, well, beta. the name of the server is actually imapbeta.optimum.net, I think, is the name of the server. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, let me reconfigure my systems to do that. So reconfigured my Mac, and that was pretty straightforward because uh, they had the server names and all that. But then I tried to set up my iOS device, and here's the problem, Dave. So, the, so sometimes iOS, I think, is too smart for its own good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then basically I said, okay, well, you know, so I edited... So what I edited on, on the iPhone was the Gmail account. Um, and if folks recall, what you typically have to do if you have multiple email addresses under, uh, you know, under a single account, like with Gmail, it's uh, one of the screens you actually put the email addresses separated by commas. So I went and undid that and then started to, you know, add a new account. And so you go to the, you know, settings, I think mail, mail and calendars or whatever and say, let me, let me set up a new one. So I started setting up a new one and asked you for, you know, what's your name? John F. Braun. What's your account name? Entered that. Uh, what's your, uh, or what's your email address? Okay. What's your password? And then this is where it gets too smart for its own good. The problem is, is that because they still offer pop, it would automatically default to selecting pop as the protocol. My guess is it's not because they still offer pop. My guess is your iOS device would, pr would prioritize IMAP. But because their main mail server doesn't answer IMAP, it's probably going to pop. Right. I think what they did is because the name of the pop server is is the same as the 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 
latter part of my email address is that they try that first. It's like, okay, let me see if there's a server called mail.optonline or optonline.net. And it did that. And it found one. And it's like, oh, and you're a pop server? Okay, great. That's what you want to do, right? And I'm like, uh, no. (laughs) Now, the thing is, I noticed that is that it picked the pop server again. I'm like, well, that's not what I want. So I actually went into the settings and I tried to change the port number. I think it's from 110. And I tried to change it to one of the common IMAP ports. I think 463 or 5, whatever. Uh, one in the 400s and one of the 500s, I think one is secure, one is not. And it's like, no, 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 can't find any pop there. I'm like, oh, great. What do I do? And so I poked around online here. And what you basically have to do is trick it. So what happens is when you get to the point where it says, you know, give me the information about your email account, what you have to do is for your email address, enter something totally bogus that kind of looks like an email address, but really isn't. So, you know, XXX at YYY.com, I think, is what I put in there. And as long as you put in something in there that's bogus, what's going to happen is it's going to try to be smart and connect to a mail server with that name. And it's going to be like, oh, I can't find it. And it's like, well, OK, now, can you tell me if this account is a pop account or an IMAP account? And please enter the specifics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because you can't is, you can't there's tell no it way- anymore. You right. used to be you able can't to tell say, it. yeah, right. I thought you could say, well, let me tell you about my IMAP email account. I thought you could do that in the past. Or maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe that was just on, on, on the Mac side. But um, being able to do that makes me happy now because now generating mail from, from my Optimum account is now a little bit more straightforward and handling the certificates and all that great stuff. So, uh, so a little tip there. That's how you trick your iOS device. Yeah, that's you good. Do IMAP. So here, um, here I'm gonna I'm gonna actually um, give our listeners some advice by way of giving you some advice that I've already given you, and that is um, run screaming from your internet provider's email account, and 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 here's why. And it's actually fine to use it. But I would not advise anyone to publicize their internet providers, the the email address you get from your internet provider. I have a Comcast email address. Um, I could use it as my catch-all for, you know, all my email. I don't. But there's no specific reason why I don't use it as my catch-all. But I would never give that out. And the reason is, if I ever choose to change providers, either I move or my provider goes under, which I don't think uh, Charter is. But, um, I, you know, it, it, Opt Online is, is a much smaller provider, so they actually have a chance of going under. Um, they probably have a chance of making money, too, which is good. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, I, I, it is so cheap to go out and get your own domain. You can go to, like, GoDaddy. Right. And you can find cheap domain uh, coupons at like retail me not or fat wallet for for GoDaddy. And uh, and you go there and you get your own domain. And part of that is you get email accounts and you can then take all the email from your domain and like forward it to, say, Gmail or to your provider's account. But this way you own the domain at which you are registering for everything at which everyone in the world knows how to contact you. And that way you never have to worry. I've I've moved and changed providers, I think, six times in the last 15 years. And mm-hmm. it didn't impact anyone's ability to send me email ever. 
Uh, you know, I've had, I've in the, even in the same house, I've had DSL, I've had cable. I hope someday to be able to get files. It's mm-hmm. really close. And when I want to move okay. to it, I can just make the move because I don't have to worry when I cancel my Comcast account, nothing happens to my email address because I don't use the one my provider gave me. So again, I just implore all of you, if you are like John using your provider's email address for things you've signed up for, make the change now. While you have the ability to do it at your leisure, you can even take a year to, you know, migrate everything over, but start doing it now so that when the day comes that you have to do it, you're not shackled to that address by your uh, provider. So that's my, uh, that's my advice to you. And, and I'll um, take it under consideration. I, 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 of course. Yeah. Which basically what I said, that means you're not going to do it. I'm going to ignore what you said. (laughs) No, I, I'll have to think about it because I, I have multiple addresses. Right. The thing is, yeah, I mean, I've moved once in my life and in both areas they had opt online. So I was OK with that. Right. But I do have I mean, I have Gmail. I, I have a Gmail account. Uh, I have a uh, Mac dot com email. Yep. Uh, I actually the other day discovered that I had a, which I had not uh, used in ages, a Yahoo email account, um, which are all IMAP. Yeah, I so would I recommend. Gmail, I mean, com, use Yahoo, the- so. Use those for your incoming email, but I would not, I wouldn't use, I wouldn't even use Gmail as the thing I sign up for stuff with, uh, you know, mm. or the address I give out to people. Right. I just, because it's so cheap for like 10 bucks a year, you can own your own domain. You don't have to host a website there. You don't have to do anything. Just own your own domain and send your email to that, you know, tell everybody that. And then you, you know, I mean, there's somebody in the chat room, Michael in the chat room, and I'll say hi to everybody at MacGeekUp.com slash stream. He's saying use P.O. Box.com, which is an email forwarding service. But again, same problem. P.O. Box.com is not your domain. So if they choose to stop doing what they're doing, you're in the same boat. You're shackled to them. Shackle yourself to something you own and because it, it's just not that expensive. So. That's that's right. my, that's well, maybe, my maybe I'll consider it more because I have had to do the switch once. So my last provider, Dave, OK, you remember them. Yeah. Long was time dot com. Right. 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 That was like the the, the pre doxis cable modem. So, yeah, I was I think. Yeah. John Braun at home dot com. And yeah, they went away. So or, or changed or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, no, good. It, it, it's good advice as I'm learning more about email here. But at least I've I've reached the point now where I've eliminated pop from my life. Yeah, right. You're not that's, even having a, pop pickup or anything. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. That was the other thing. I actually, you know, well, you actually, I got to switch. Well, actually, I got to um, update my mom because, but both my the, the other members of my family both have Yahoo accounts, and I and I think last I checked, I was actually kind of surprised when I activated this Yahoo email account because it came up as IMAP, and I'm like, really? Because I the, I think when I set up my mom with uh, at least set up my mom with uh, Yahoo, they were they only offered pop. They did not offer IMAP. So it was a number of years ago. So I'll have to switch her over. Cool. All right. Well, I think, my friend, that that brings us as close to uh, the end as we're going to get. And uh, I'm glad we solved the problem. And hopefully you didn't cut out too much that we didn't realize. People in the chat room say there might have been a little cut out earlier. And uh, if that was there, I apologize. Because we hate to miss what you have to say, Mr. Braun. Not I good. Do too. Yeah, not good. All right. Uh, let's see. What do we have here? If you want to. Speaking e- of email, Dave. Yes. Oh. No, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Take it. 
feedback at MackieGap.com is where you send an email with questions, tips, cookies. Take the cookies out of your browser and email them to us. Is that what you're telling people to do? No, no, no. Don't do that. <laughs> I we would don't not want recommend that. No, we don't want that. Uh, feedback at MacGeekGap.com is what my good friend John F. Braun said to, is the address to email us. Indeed. If, if I'm cutting out, feedback. Not feedback. Feedback at MacGeekGap.com. Yeah, though feedback does work because uh, we have one listener who loves to use it. So we aim to <laughs> please. That's right. Uh, you can call us if you want to leave an audio comment at 206-666-GEEK, which is, John... 433 plus 5. <laughs> nice. Well, 4335. That's right. Yes. No plus sign needed. Uh, you can find the show notes that we'll put together for you that John will polish up. Actually, you're going to have more than just polish work to do today. John, uh, I didn't get... I got a lot of stuff in there. But... Uh, you can find that at MacGeekCab.com, a domain that we own so that we know that the email will always come to us. See how we did that? John, tell them about how to find us on Twitter. On the Twitters, he is Dave Hamilton. I am John F. Braun. That guy flying around somewhere is Pilot Pete. The podcast is MacGeekCab and the publication with all sorts of Mac news and tips and all sorts of stuff. Mac Observer. Is how you get us on the Twitters. You can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash MacGeekCab. We always post an appointment there or an event there, as uh, as I should say, that um, that uh, tells you when we're doing the live show. And uh, it's been moving around, but I think it's going to start settling back into Sunday soon uh, because life schedules are, you know, summer schedules get crazy, especially for me. So. Oh, yeah. All right. And for the three people that use AppNet or uh, G+, I guess we're there too, right? We are. We, I always put events up on Google+. That we have, it's, there's a lot of people. There are millions of people that use Google+, John. It's a good thing. Oh, all right. Yeah, in fact, I, in fact, especially after what we went through today, uh, I, I am going, we, you and I are going to start experimenting with using a Google Plus Hangout for this instead of Skype. Because, I think uh, so. yeah, because I think it, uh, it may work even better and give people, it may, it may eliminate, I don't know, we'll have to, we have to experiment with it and see how it, uh, see how it works. I think, Al, I think Allison does those. Does she? Yeah. On a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I or at think least we when can... we were at MacWorld, it was fun. We we did the video aspect there. I think we did a, a Google Hangout and yeah, yeah. We're running around. But you can her, you uh, can do a private gathering. Google Hangout. Not that we would have sure. to make it private, but you can do a private Google Hangout that uh, that, uh, from what a lot of people say, does even better than what Skype does. So uh, so I don't. Know, we'll we'll play with it. We'll see what happens. Uh, all right, we do want to thank Michael Johnston. He is the host of We Have Communicators. Uh, and also the publisher of getapplure.com. He takes this show, converts it to AAC ads in chapters and all of that good stuff for you and for us. So thank you, Michael, for that. Also, thanks to the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. And with that, uh, we do want to thank the uh, folks at Barebone Software in the podcast marketplace for uh, making BB Edit and Yojimbo and sponsoring the show. Also in the podcast marketplace is Text Expander and PDF Pen for iPad from Smile, Gazelle.com, sell off your stuff, Squarespace.com, 20% off with the MGG9 coupon code, and of course, BusyCal.com. Thanks a lot, folks. Uh, have a great week. 
and don't get caught. Yeah. Made up.